Welcome to Primal Learning. Are you a parent who struggles to motivate your child? Are you a teacher who would like some tips on how to manage student behaviour? Are you a school leader trying to determine the best way to support your staff? If you've answered yes to any of these questions, then you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Damien Barry, and this is a podcast that explores four broad areas which I believe are important, or at least of interest to many people, and these are learning, schools, education, and teaching. In this podcast, my goal is to debunk myths, provide helpful advice, explore the difficult topics, critique the burning issues, and debate the latest trends. I will look at what works, what doesn't, what annoys and what confounds for parents, students, teachers, and those who'd simply like to understand a bit more about the world of learning and schooling in general. So let's get into it. Okay, well, hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Primal Learning. Today, I'm very fortunate uh, and thrilled to be able to introduce to you all a gentleman who I've been working with for the last few years, and his name is Steve Shaw. Now, Steve is a teacher who's got a, a breadth of experience uh, across a long period of time teaching at a variety of different schools within Australia. And I thought it'd be wonderful to hear about his perception of how the teaching profession, how the classroom or uh, how students learn has changed or otherwise throughout the term of his career. I thought it'd be wonderful to hear from a person who's um, experienced all of this and more. Thank you, Steve, for joining us today. Uh, And I'm really keen to hear about a few things about how you see the profession has changed uh, throughout your teaching profession to date. So I thought I'd start by hearing or, or, or asking the first question, which should be around can you, you know, tell us a bit about when you first started teaching, you know, what was your first posting, where was it, and or why did you first decide to become a teacher in the first place? Um, right, well, um, basically, um, uh, thanks for having me today. I'm glad to share some perspectives uh, or what they're worth. The, um, I suppose I suppose first started teaching back in 1971, uh, which is a fair while ago, and I was a primary school teacher. Because uh, I thought that would be the easiest place to start with. Little kids, you can control them, and I hopefully knew more than what they would do. So um, it was indeed the only choice I had out of high school because it was the only <laughs> scholarship that was offered to me, and my parents were not very well off at the time. So um, I did. I could have gone into retail um, and some other um, friendships, but uh, in discussions with my parents, we decided teaching was the way to go. Um, and because I had a flair for the arts and a flair for public speaking and debating and those sort of things, I found it very easy to express myself, so we thought that this would be an easy way to go. Um, so we started um, teaching. I went to Teachers College uh, in Brisbane, made the big trip from country to city, um, and then uh, started teaching at, uh, uh, in the state school system in Education Queensland. Uh, I started teaching with a Year 4 class. Uh, I did that for a couple of years, got involved with bands and sports and all that sort of thing, and then sent out to a one-teacher school for uh, uh, several years in the, wow. in the West. Um, mm-hmm. Did district leading right across central Queensland uh, in primary and secondary, thrown into hospitality classes to industrial design classes, anything from Burketown through to Charleville through to Emerald or Campton uh, and uh, further south. So all over central and western Queensland, uh, having spent some time in one-teacher school yeah. and then came back and ran my own um, one-teacher school uh, outside Warwick for a time. So um, in all of that, um, I was trying to... Uh, I got the, to, the, to the point of being able to 
run my own little 23-pupil one-teacher school and um, uh, got involved in self-directed learning back in 73-74. Set up my own school with learning posts and heaps of work on weekends and evening and my wife helped me with that. Um, she was my offsider and unofficial helper and um, we had a great time as the inspector came around and had a look at what we did and all that kind of stuff. It was really an exciting time. But I suppose in the midst of that, I could see that no matter what I did, wherever I taught, there was disadvantaged kids, mm. students who really were behind the eight ball with learning, who had very little interest, it appeared at the first instance, uh, in learning. And whatever interest you created, whatever momentum you got going was suddenly cast aside by the um, impact of the home situation. In effect, I went from from looking at the student to looking at the family mm. and seeing how important the family was and thinking, I can't help the student until I help the family. And for that reason, I left teaching for a while and went into uh, church ministry, looking at family-centred uh, ministries um, and spent a quite great of time, almost uh, uh, 20 years of my life, involved in church ministry, looking at families. Yeah. And then um, realised that, um, yeah, you can... You can see the child as an individual apart from his family. Yes. So I, I, I came back to, to teaching um, and came back uh, in the, in the mid, late, mid to late 90s and um, was amazed to find that nothing really had changed. <laughs> <laughs> so I went in and did some primary school teaching again and, yeah, it was much the same as when I left it, basically. And uh, then I got involved in some secondary school and thought, now, secondary school was very, very interesting because you, you had a developing mature mind at the central point of development at that years, uh, seven, eight, nine, and ten. They were so central uh, to the development of the child. So what motivated me then was, hey, I'm, I better do some research on this. So I, I did a, a master's degree in, in uh, advanced pedagogies and curriculum planning and changes in, in, in um um, in education, and I saw that there was supposed to have been all these changes, yeah. but in fact, very little had changed on the ground. Yeah, yeah. So I thought I could have a hands-on participation at the at the ground level uh, with students, and I suppose that's what motivated me. I sort of had this vision of a little kid looking at a chrysalis and seeing that whole new butterfly come out, yeah, and yeah. so. I know it was very cliche, but the, the phrase back then was discovering the joy of learning. Yeah. And it wasn't so much the discipline of teaching mm. as getting back. And I suppose all the, the theory was about student-centred learning. Yeah. But I don't, didn't really see, uh, if you like, examples or examples of how that was really happening because yeah. everybody was still teaching content, content, content. Yeah. And it was the teaching of the content rather than learning Yes. of where the child was at to take them to the next step and to allow them to free them to develop that interest, that engagement that yes. was, um, if you like, sparking uh, the interest in, the, in their own mind, in their own lives. It came back to that centred back to the student again and student-centred uh, pedagogy, student-centred learning was what took over and that's where I continued on doing the Masters and, and uh, doctoral work in that area. Yeah. But coming back into teaching, of course, I discovered that there was this thing called the computer. Yeah. <laughs> and I was completely computer illiterate. Okay. Um, and I found I, I couldn't engage with the kids until yeah. I actually became computer literate myself. Yeah. So, you, went, you went and did a bit of extra training, didn't you, or, or qualifications and study quite, quite a lot, didn't you, I think, once that 
that that I guess that that dawned upon you in terms of your your where you, where you felt you were lacking some skills, and you, you you clearly went and sort of filled those gaps by the sounds of it. Well, the, the things that I used to do to engage students and putting interesting information wasn't as valuable to the student as I thought it used to be. Okay. Um, so I, as I looked around at one or two teachers that were doing some interesting stuff and I looked around at some of the theory and I found mainly with maths and science, the project-directed learning, uh, the inquiry-directed learning, uh, which was so student-centred, yeah. um, was engaging those students but I couldn't see it being done in English. Yeah. Um, so my, my how do we actually get to do this? And that's where I think digital learning started opening up the resource centre. And somebody said to me, 80% of good teaching is resources. Yeah. The other yeah. percent is 20% is what you do with it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I was thinking, well, okay, what seems to be lacking is we don't have this digital resource in the English area that allows these kids to be engaged where they've got control over what they're doing. Because what seemed to be happening, the difference was, the difference from content learning to student-centred learning was the student had control of the pathway, the resources, and that student voice was being allowed to express so they could take themselves on their journey. And the old adage, the, the adage that we now see as pretty cliché, which was really crucial back then, was the teacher had to become not the sage on the stage, but the guide on the side. Right on the side, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And sitting on the side is a terrible place for a teacher to be because you lose control. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And suddenly yeah. the classroom is controlled by a group of 20, 25 students, and yeah. if they're all boys, it's even worse. <laughs> uh, you find that happy equilibrium, don't you? That happy place yeah. between staff yeah. and student interaction. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like running a football team. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? yeah. you don't know where they're going to run with the ball. Yeah, you don't yeah. know who's ready to catch the ball. Yeah. Uh, you don't even know what the ball is sometimes. So yeah. when, when you're teaching something, whether it's an analytic essay or a creative writing exercise or whether you're teaching vocabulary or grammar, you've got this ball in your hand and you want to pass it to them and you want their hands to be out to receive it. Yeah. And the way that you pass it to them uh, has to be very carefully studied. But you want that ball in their hands and you want the ball passing around between them. Yeah. And that, that's an analogy. And when you see that happening, there's an animation, there's a joy, there's a... There's yeah. an energy that transpires. Yeah, well, kids um, need that structure just as much as we as teachers need to deliver it, isn't it, don't we? Oh, don't exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, exactly. And yeah. Uh, yeah. trying to get my hands around that in, in, the, in the first couple of schools I came back to in the private sector were very conservative schools, yeah. not progressive at all. Yeah. And it wasn't until um, one headmaster headhunted me and asked me to come to his school as yeah. the middle school coordinator where I had suddenly I had year... Um, eight and nine and ten as an opportunity to integrate, uh, to look at uh, a real student-centred project that integrated subjects, cut down assessment and focused on the learning rather than on uh, the assessment, uh, yeah. that we actually had a chance to say, oh, these kids are starting to engage. And, of course, yeah. being in a boys' school, yeah. uh, you've really got to engage or you or you lost them. Yeah, true. But coming back, I think the, the thing that really impressed me was particularly in the boys' school, the boys' pedagogy, mm. they really wanted to connect with the teacher as a person. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the second thing was True. they wanted you to treat them fairly. Yeah. That there's a real sense of deep justice and injustice within yeah. boys. And when girls are wanting to speak about it, the girls will admit that too. 
they want to be treated as fairly as everybody else. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. 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 So the girls look around and say, "Well, you treated them, but you didn't treat me." Boys will say, "No, you, you didn't understand me." Yeah. Boys are more individualistic. The girls are more tribal-centered. Yeah. But you, you find that that sense of justice in the way that you treat them, uh, if they can connect with you in that and believe you in that, and all of a sudden they understand you're a person that wants to work with them because they are valuable people. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, they're not always valued as much overtly in their homes. Yeah. In, in a football team or a soccer team or a, uh, some sort of sporting team, they're valued as an individual. Yeah. But in the classroom, that gets lost. You've been in the classroom in some shape or form for almost 50 years now. That's a long time. And, and what amazes me about you, Stephen, the time I've known you over the last few years is that you've still got a thirst for your own professional learning over those 50 years, you know what I mean? You don't, you don't rely on stuff that you've learned over the last sort of four or five decades of that you continue to sort of continue to de- develop areas that you feel you need to work on so that you can do a better job in the classroom, which then has a flow on positive effect to the kids that you teach. So I'm, I, I really admire that. And it's one of the reasons why I've asked you to, <laughs> for this little podcast um, interview today. But I guess just based on what you're talking about there as well, mate, I'm, I'm interested to know about, and you sort of touched upon a little bit there when you were talking about the differences between boys and girls and how they perceive, you know, what's important to them, et cetera, around equity, et cetera. But you know, what other changes have you seen in adolescence from, you know, the 1971 uh, classroom that you entered through to the, the 2020 classrooms that you now uh, inhabit and, and work in. Have, have you seen any changes in the way adolescents sort of conduct themselves or their needs or the way they learn or the way they communicate, etc.? What's your thoughts around that? I think they've become um, more personally aware of the world around them and they've been asked to take on a pathway. It's all about what am I going to do when I leave school? Usually it was all about just getting through school yeah, yeah. And, the, and the rest took care of itself. Now there's a very much an awareness of I live in a world, so that whole global phenomenon of what is happening in the world around me and my place in the world, what, what is my journey, what is my process, well, how am I going to cope in this world yeah. um, and are you teaching me the right things? So you're getting these, um, if you like, you've got to justify. Why am I learning this is the question you hear now that you never heard before. Okay. They just did as they were told. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. Do you think they're a bit more, or they were more compliant back in 1971, or you know, are they a little bit, a little bit harder to sort of, I guess, uh, stay, keep them engaged, keep them on task. Yeah, I'm just thinking about classroom management, behaviour management. Mm-hmm. Is that, a, is there been any changes on that, on that front? I, yeah, I, I think like back then, the, the teacher was the dictator. He was the god in the, yeah. uh, in the classroom. Yeah. Yeah. The syllabus was his, was your whip that he used to bring him into shape. Okay. You had to get through this amount of knowledge. Yeah. I don't think it's that way anymore. No. Um, and no. and I, I, I think it's like a, the classic story of uh, what's the capital of Western Australia? You know, nobody knows what the capital of Western Australia is. <laughs> uh, uh, and you used to have to know straight off it's Perth. Yeah. Well, not anymore. Uh, now you've got to teach them, hey, when you go to the internet, how do you do a search engine? What mm-hmm. terms do you put in and find out it's Perth? So they can actually have control of the information and they want that control. Yes. Uh, So in terms of teaching the skills rather than the content, because they need those skills for uh, 21st century living. Mate, that's Uh, a really, that's a real key distinction you've just made there, isn't it? You know, that's uh, the delivery or teaching of skills 
um, probably comes even before the delivery of content these days, isn't it? I, I think it's there. It's there as a, as a central point. And, um, and I think these get, and what the problem, of course, is that because of our ageing teaching staff, yeah. some of us don't have the yeah. skill-based digital learning that needs to transmit that. Yes, yeah. Uh, so one of the things I've learned in, in, oh, since, since about 2003 and four, yeah. um, I've always looked for the master student group who yeah. know how to run technology. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. Now, in our school, we've got a really great little guy. Yeah. There's always one or two in every class. Yeah, you lean on them, don't you? Yeah. And, and um, you make up for your deficit, but they feel as though they're in charge of the learning. Yeah. And when kids come up and show you what you've done wrong, they know that you are learning with them. So the learning with, I think, has become yes. one of the key changes. Yes. And students are happy for the students for the teacher to say, I don't know how to do this, but yeah. let's find out together how we can get it done. Yeah, and that's another key distinction there. Absolutely. I guess carrying on from that you know, that concept around the role of the teacher, how have you seen how teachers are perceived within society since from when you first started teaching or even thinking about you know, entering the profession to how you feel teachers are perceived now within general society. Have you seen a change in that perception? I think that the teacher, teacher's role has changed in that rather than just being conveyors of knowledge, there is a pastoral whole-of-life aspect that didn't exist before. Before, mm -hmm. we were just the academic uh, conduit of knowledge, mm -hmm. so you've got an A, B or a C. Now I think it's about holistic learning yeah. uh, and integrating learning so that the well-being of the student, their emotional well-being as well as their spiritual and um, uh, academic well-being has got to be catered for. And I think there is expectation from parents that teachers will understand the whole of their child yeah. rather than just the part that they interact with at their academic level. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that, that broader aspect of life experience yeah. What about the value? Teaching as a profession, do you think it's more or less valued than it was 40, 50 years ago? I, I found in the private school situation that it is valued. Mm. And, and, and I see that, like I, I've been to a couple of, uh, of, of the better private schools, uh, what would be considered to be um, yeah. uh, higher-ranking ones, and mm. I've noticed that the parents there expect uh, a higher degree of professionalism. Mm. Uh, they want to see a product being produced where their kids, and, and I've been to some schools where a B is not is not good enough for their kids. They want to get an A, and how are you going to, and they want to know, how is your kid going to get an A? Now, you've got to look at the kid's ability, obviously. They're looking for a pathway for improvement, and the expectation upon teachers for that is there. Mm. And, and I think it's the same if you take your car to a mechanic, you want to know how well your brakes are going to work, yeah. how well your petrol consumption is going to yeah. There is expectation now of yeah. that quality, yes. quality uh, result that probably didn't matter as much before. But in a very competitive world um, where what comes up on your report card influences your career process, yes. that has become a very important part. And the teacher, I think, is valued in that. So if you're able to deliver that, uh, you're valued. If you're not, and the, and, the, and the kid will know within a term, sometimes within a couple of weeks, whether or not you can do that. 
Yes, they're, they're quite perceptive, aren't they, around that? That's right. And on the basis of that, you've got their interest and their participation. Yeah. And you've also got the parental support. Do you, do you, uh, just on that topic, do you think the demands uh, on a teacher has changed as a result of that, as a result of that parental expectation or, or student expectation or just social society expectations? Have the demands changed? You know, like, has your... Has the, uh, the intensity of your work day or work week or work year ramped up uh, since when you first started teaching to now? And, and, if, and if so, in what way? I, I know what you're saying. Uh, for me, I don't feel the pressure from parents or from students in that. Okay. The greater pressure is myself upon myself. The pressure that I have, that I must learn something new every day, something every week, that I must see these kids. If these kids are not progressing, what is it that I am not doing? So I think one of the best subjects that I took when I came back in the 90s uh, and did my master's was the self-reflective teacher. Okay. Uh, and to be able to be judgmental about yourself yeah. uh, in terms of what you need to do yeah. to connect with this kid and that kid. Uh, and I think that's, that's a very important aspect. So the pressure is what I put upon myself is a greater pressure than what kids or parents are going to put upon me always. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't feel that. I recognise that it's there, but I'm saying, oh, well, isn't it great that they want that? Yeah. Because now I can operate in, a, in an atmosphere where I can push this kid to his limits yeah. and know that the parent is going to support me in that. What, what about... The administrivia, yeah, as we as we call it within within education circles, you know, has that has that increased over the years? Yeah, in, in in a in a way that's potentially detrimental to what you deliver in the classroom. Do you think? Yeah, I think one of the things we found in curriculum is that things that used to be taught in first year university have come down into senior high. Senior high knowledge has gone down to junior high has gone down. So that 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 knowledge intensity has gone down. Yeah. and the skills associated with that. And I think the same thing has happened with teachers in the yeah. teaching profession. What yeah. used to be senior management roles and expectations come down to middle management, get passed down into a classroom teacher. Usually without, uh, without the time uh, allocation to yeah. do it properly. Yeah. So no longer are you actually preparing lessons, looking at your pedagogy, looking at the learning style, individualising your lessons for your for, and uh, doing all that kind of adjustment that you need to do but you're also uh, being asked to be the manager of this and the manager of that and the importer on this and the workshopping for this and all the rest of it that used to be the senior management but what we're finding is that senior management is more uh, if you like um, uh, distant yeah. to what happens in the classroom and the decisions that management make the impact of it and in terms of the processing of it is yeah. not looked at in terms of what's happening on the ground. And yeah. one of the greatest problems I think that we face at the, at the base level of teaching in the classroom is the lack of constructed vision with processing across a number of years. Yeah. I remember a number of years ago I brought in um, uh, English Extension operating in a senior school that I was at, wanted to process it down into year eight and nine into Extension English. Well, in that particular school, that's taken six years to get to that point. Yeah, wow. Okay. And so to realise that there is a process at the base level that classroom teachers have to, I suppose, the consultation and collaboration with the base level teachers who are on the front line, if you like, they're the infantry, they're the shock troops. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and the generals and the, and, the, and the majors and the captains above them. 
yeah. sitting in their comfy offices, <laughs> haven't got their feet in the in the dirt of the trenches, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, and not understanding what the the depth of wisdom and experience that happens at the trench base yeah. that could actually lead to that whole area. So that, I know there's a lot of pressure with individual learning and, and um, yeah. uh, all the rest, support learning and all the rest of it, and there's curriculum knowledge, there is uh, paperwork that has to be done, and yeah, teachers have always been time poor. It's just part yeah. of what you do. Doctors are time poor, nurses are time poor, yeah. anybody in professions are time poor. Yeah, it's just yeah. part of what you live with. Yeah. Uh, it's being yeah. professional. That, that it just comes with the, with the territory. What, uh, what, but what, what keeps you in the classroom today? What excites you about, you know, 50 years later or close to 50 years after you first started teaching? What, what keeps you turning up day after day? Uh, you know, uh, you know, what's, the fact that a kid who hates English within a couple of weeks or a term starts to love English. Yeah. You love us coming to your classroom. She yeah. loves learning. She loves someone who's never read a novel in their life suddenly yeah. has read a novel and the light has switched on that yeah. this is a good thing and I've learned something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's finally they've written a teal paragraph that actually makes sense yeah. rather than it's like, like somebody's just thrown it together on the table. Yeah. Uh, and they've actually said, look at this, look what you have done. This has been brilliant. I suppose the moments I remember most have been hearing uh, a student who was uh, autistic he got up and gave this speech yeah. and I forgot to mark him, assess him. In fact, the tears just rolled down my cheeks because I just saw what he did wow. and it just affected me so emotionally, yeah. the fact that he could get up and speak the way he did with confidence and do what he did. Yeah. And I've seen so many moments like that uh, in the classroom that when they come, they're sheer gold. They're just yeah. pure magic. Yeah. And it's yeah. at that point you realise everything is worthwhile because of what's happened with that kid. Now, to take him to the next step, of course, is a challenge. And yeah. to look for that, to build and grow upon that is great. To get that moment where they've gone from inactivity to being an active learner. Yeah. Uh, and they're taking, and they're actually finding joy in that. That whole, that old cat, cat me phrase, joy of learning, has actually been expressed yeah. in what they've done upon their face, on the product yeah. that they've brought out. Yeah. It's just great that, you know, I spoke about administrivia before and how it sort of grinds teachers down at times. It's just wonderful that you haven't let that diminish your your joy and in the ability to find that magic in kids' lives and within your classroom. That that's, that's what still drives you to this day. I think that's just brilliant. I guess my next question, Steve, is around, you know, if you had a blank slate or if you had... Uh, as much resources as you can lay your hands on and if budget wasn't, wasn't an issue, what are a couple of changes you'd like to see within schools in general? What could schools do differently if resources and if money wasn't an issue or wasn't a barrier? I've been impressed by a school that I read about in Victoria in mm. the state school system who chucked out their whole assessment program and streamed kids from year 7 to 12 based upon their interest and upon the things they wanted to do mm. in a self-directed learning program. Okay. I think that I'd like to be so revolutionary yeah. that we could be brave enough to do that. And uh, I, even this morning I heard on national radio about a lady in New South Wales in the university model looking, who said ATAR has failed. They're looking at a model of three days in school and two days out in the workforce. Okay. And, having a whole portfolio of work based upon the learning profile of a student, yeah. having, the, having the opportunity to be brave enough 
to go outside the norms and look at what is best for the child rather than ticking boxes yeah. in programs that often are cyclic in their failure yeah. uh, when it comes to getting... And like I see so many kids that have come out of private schools in the regional area where I am, yeah. uh, and for two or three years they wander in a wilderness they go from hospitality job to retail job and go to McDonald's and, and they don't know what they're doing for three or four years because all that wonderful teaching and results that they've got from year seven to 12 have not equipped them for what life is asking of them. Yes. And if, if, if we could go back and say, what really should we be doing? If we could work with a group of um, 20 or 30 kids and just work with them all the way through and, and look, look at these small groups and work with them so that they could What's your dream? What, what would you like to do? And I know that year six, seven and eight kids don't always know, but when you sit down and talk with them, they have a way of learning and things that they want to do but they've never really been listened to or encouraged because they come out of a system which puts them in straitjackets. Yeah. If somehow we could alleviate that, I know we've got to have the foundations. You've got to have yeah. foundations, yes. You've got to have English and maths and science. Yeah. You've got to do those things. But do it in a way that equips them for living. Um, I'd really like to be able to, yeah, to do that revolutionary approach. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. And I've heard similar approaches across the world, and I reckon there's plenty of people, uh, both teachers and non-teachers, who wholeheartedly agree with you around that, yeah. around, um, yeah, is our current system, um, which was essentially developed in the 1750s, yeah. <laughs> around the time of the Industrial Revolution, yeah. is it still equipping our students with the skills and capabilities they now need for a fairly complex and sophisticated world society that uh, exists now and certainly more so into the future? And many people say, no, it's not. So we need to change something because the way we educate kids now, set up you know, 200 plus years ago, isn't doing what we need it to do. So and I think you've touched upon that you know, quite significantly just there. So I think that was a brilliant answer. I, I guess my one of my last questions, Steve, is around if you had the opportunity to talk to your young self if you were about to enter the profession today, the teaching profession today, what would you say to your young self if you were about to embark upon a teaching career in 2020 or 2021? What would you say to that person? What would you say to the young Steve? knowing what you know now? Probably something like uh, listen to your heart and don't be afraid to wear your heart on your sleeve when it comes to what you're doing and what you believe. Yeah. Um, and not to let anybody limit you in that because you get so many don't-doers and you think they know more than you do and really they're speaking out of disappointment rather than success. Yeah. Um, and before you get squashed upon and your, and your, whole, your whole heart and passion goes, yeah. go with your heart and your passion and what, and what you feel is right within you to do this in the way that you think it should be done and to be brave enough not to worry about the consequences of that yeah. uh, because somewhere or other in the scheme of life, it, what you lose on the roundabout, you pick up the merry-go-round. Yeah, nice. <laughs> you oh. don't always see it straight away. Yeah. But to look back without regret in following your heart and following your passion, I think. Yeah. Uh, to live without regret is probably is, uh, uh, is, is the best thing that I'd say to myself. Don't regret not doing that. Why have that idea? Why have that thought? Why have that passion yeah. and not express it? Why not have a go and do it? And even if you fail, next time you'll do it better. Yeah, and you've learned something in the process. Yeah. Well, well and truly, yes. Yeah. 
Oh, that's a brilliant answer. It, you know, you come across just talk as you were talking. There, I was just reflecting upon it that there's there's plenty of people out there that were very quick to tell you why things won't work, mm. uh, and it takes a fair bit of courage sometimes to just persevere and follow your heart and find ways to make things that will work. No, and, and alternatively, you learn to do that yourself. So if a kid comes with an idea, you want to tell him why it won't work. Yeah. And you've got to listen to him and say, well, I, yeah, well, that could possibly work. How do you think you might do that? Okay, yeah. what have you got to look out for? So you learn that behaviour from other people as well. Yeah, yeah true, true. Steve, I just want to applaud you and thank you very much for your wonderful insights and, and answers to those questions. I, I, I've certainly, um, like I said before, I, I, I really admire the way that you turn up every day with a sense of excitement uh, and joy, curiosity around learners and learning and your own learning as well um, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, it's a real inspiration to someone like myself uh, and I'm sure to others that you work with um, closely both in the classroom and on your campus as well. So thank you very much, mate, for answering that those questions and, and lastly for your time. It's a, uh, at the end of a, another busy working week. Um, I very much appreciate it. So thank you very much, Steve. Well, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to be teaching, and it's a privilege to actually be able to talk about teaching cool. or learning. <laughs> yeah, nice. Okay, thank you. Right. Thanks, mate. I hope you've enjoyed this week's topic. Before we go, don't forget to click on the subscribe button for this podcast wherever you listen, and give it a rating. You can find me on social media such as Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram, or contact me via email at dbarry1913 at gmail.com. You can even leave a suggestion for a future topic if you wish. Either way, I'd love to hear from you. I'll have another episode in two weeks. I'm Damien Barry. Thanks for listening to Primal Learning.